I want to welcome all of you again today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust that you are thankful that the Lord has brought you through the week and has brought you here today, that we might unite our hearts together in the oneness that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is in that oneness we can grow, encourage, and edify one another. If you have a cell phone, would you please check it now and make sure that it's on mute? We would appreciate that. If you're here with little ones, if you are visiting with us with little ones, you will see our, uh, some of our very littlest ones here with us. We think that's where they ought to be. But they're in training, so you'll hear them once in a while. Our parents know to... Uh, if they're having one of those, if their children are having one of those mornings where they just need a little room to quiet down, you can go straight through that back door and you can continue following the service on the uh, large screen that's back there. We want you to be uh, comfortable while you're uh, quieting your little one. We know sometimes that takes a little longer than it does other times. And may the Lord bless and encourage you in that. You'll see our own people take them out. So please do not hesitate. You will not distract us if you need to take one of your children out. We also have a nursing mother's room. So I do pray uh, if any of you need that, you can ask those in the back where it is. They'll guide you right to it. That being said, uh, we have concluded our lengthy series on conscience and stumbling blocks. We're going to do a few messages on some uh, themes that I think are important for us to consider while I continue preparing for our studies and our sermons in the epistle to the Hebrews, or perhaps I should say the sermon to the Hebrews, depending on how you see it. So uh, today I would uh, like for you to turn to Luke chapter 19. This has been something burning in my own heart for quite some time, and I pray that this will be of use to all of you at some level. It's not going to say the same thing to each of us, but I do pray that where it applies, uh, we will hear the Lord. It's quite likely that some of us will come away with different thoughts, different questions, but that's okay as long as you're listening and thinking, and those questions arise from hearing God. That's what we want this morning. Luke chapter 19. We're going to read verses 28 through 44. 28 through 44. I apologize to you all this morning. I was unable to put together the outline that I normally have, but I trust you will be able to follow along the primary thoughts here anyway. I hope they will be clear enough that you will be able to follow each of these primary thoughts. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. Would you please stand with me as we give our attention to the Holy Word of God? Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. This 
is God's word. And when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. He is Jesus. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of them. The need of him. And they brought him to Jesus. And they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King! That cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. And glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him. Master. Rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them. I tell you. That if these should hold their peace. The stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near. He beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee, in, in, uh, keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's unite our hearts at the throne of grace. Lord, blessed Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We have gathered at thy word, and we have come to hear thy word. Father, I am nothing, a weak and feeble vessel, 
not long for this world. But Lord, thy word <clears throat> will endure forever. I thank thee. I thank thee that we have thy word. Wilt thou draw nigh to us and speak from thy word? If these dear sheep of thine go away today only hearing me, they will be robbed. They will have nothing. They will have come for something that was denied them. But I pray, O oh Christ, these are thy people, these are thy sheep. Every regenerate soul here is hungry for thee. Wilt thou not come in thy power and feed the souls of the hungry? Saturate the souls of the thirsty. Quench their thirst. May the fountains of living water rise up in our souls. Lord Jesus, thou didst promise this. Rivers. Rivers of living water. Please let us know it. Please make thyself known. Make thy word clear. Help this vessel of dust. This fallible human being. To handle thy living word. In a way that brings thee glory. In a way that feeds thy sheep. In a way that leaves none here guiltless, that leaves none here dissatisfied with thy word. Please come. May all the glory and praise be thine. And I do plead for those that are lost, and there are lost ones here. We ask thee to draw near. And press upon their souls, their lostness. Show them their darkness. Show them their alienation from thee. And show them that thou art a willing Savior. And for, O oh God, I pray for those who know thee. <clears throat> May they be filled. Filled with thy spirit. Filled with thy word. Filled with Christ. I pray it in his holy name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Luke, the beloved physician, sets before us one of the most deeply moving contrasts in the life and mission of Jesus Christ. In verses 28 through 40, the good doctor describes Jesus' approach to Jerusalem. A thundering crowd of disciples enthusiastically accompanied and welcomed Jesus as King Messiah. But in verses 41 through 44, Luke follows their jubilant scene 
with a portrait of our Savior weeping. That is a startling contrast. Let us meditate on that mysterious contrast a little bit. The incarnate Son of God approached the city of God and the people of God joyfully welcomed him as the king of the kingdom of God. Why then was Jesus weeping? For three and a half years, he hasn't had a reception like this. Why is Jesus weeping? Why were tears? Why were tears gushing from his eyes? Streaming down his cheeks and raining from his holy face. They were not tears of joy. They were not tears of gratitude. They were not tears of bodily pain. They were not tears of fear. They were not tears of cowardice. They were not tears of disappointment. We weep for those reasons. That is not why Christ is weeping. These were not tears for himself. Jesus was crying tears for the lost. So the title of our message is Tears for the Lost. May God, our Heavenly Father, grant us understanding of His infallible Word. May he do so by the illuminating power of his spirit. And may Christ his son visit us. You hear this? Church should be a taste of heaven on earth. Because Jesus comes and ministers to his people. This is not a series of lectures. These are words from God. I think we hear those words, and for many of us, it rolls right off our back. 
like the proverbial water off the duck. When God speaks, the world needs to listen. May Christ visit us with his saving and sanctifying presence. Well, consider first when these tears were shed. This is verses 28 through 40. Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem for the Passover. On the way, he said to the twelve, Behold, look, fix your mind on this. We go up to Jerusalem, and all things that were written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For she, for he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. This is Jesus, the God-man, speaking. Now, what was the disciples' response to that revelation? The sacred text says, and they understood none of these things. We're not talking about the Roman soldiers. We're not even talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We're talking about his hand-picked disciples. They didn't understand one word. They heard it. But they didn't get it. They understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. It's almost as if Luke can't drive the point home powerfully enough. That statement, listen carefully, that statement should shake us. That statement, properly understood and enlightened by the Holy Spirit, should shake us up. It should waken us out of our fleshly stupor. Jesus himself can say something in plain language, but we will not understand it without his opening our hearts. Do we plead with God? Every week in between the services, meet with us. Open my heart. Help me to hear thy voice. Help me to hear my God. Or do do we just show up? Every church service should have joyful singing, earnest praying, and careful listening.
We can hear what Jesus says, but we cannot understand what he means without his spirit helping us. After Jesus rose from the dead and stood in the presence of his awestruck disciples, he said, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. This is what I was talking about. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. In other words, Jesus is alive throughout the entire Old Testament. He is revealed. He is hidden sometimes. But he is there always. This is the three parts of the Bible broken up before us. Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Or sometimes it is considered Moses, the prophets, and the writings. But Jesus says, concerning me. There was no New Testament at this point. There was no Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then this passage goes on to say beautifully. Then opened he their understanding. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. That means when we read the Pentateuch, when we read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Jesus is there. Are we praying and asking God to show us Jesus in the book that points to him? Leviticus. I've never met anybody. I'm sure he or she's out there somewhere. But I've never had anybody say to me, oh, my favorite book is Leviticus. So I, I really I just love the fact that it's almost pure law. It's great. Fills me with unutterable joy. What? There's not enough laws here. Give me more. I, there, it's, not, it's not that way. But Jesus is all through that book. Every sacrifice points to Jesus. Every shedding of blood points to Jesus. The prophets, the priests all point to Jesus. And even the kings in other writings. He's there. He's telling them this. And he's saying you shouldn't be shocked. That after my death. I rose again. And that I'm standing here before you. This is what I told you. Brethren how many sermons. Have we heard. In a lifetime. And how many of them. Have we understood. So that. It changed our thinking. Changed our lives. Gave us a greater love for Jesus. Gave us a greater hatred for sin. Kindled the fire in our hearts for a greater love for him and a greater love for one another. Where is it? These are the things that I spake to you. Then opened he their understanding. We should be praying. Every time we gather, Lord, open our understanding. Draw near to us and open our understanding. It changes what a church service is. 
Oh, that the Holy Spirit, the real, powerful, creating Spirit, resurrecting Spirit, would open our understanding every time we read the Scriptures. Do you long for that? Or do we just get up and go, no. Pastor may preach today on whether we're reading the Scriptures enough or not. Maybe I'll read a little more. Shouldn't be that way. Nobody has to tell you to be hungry, right? Parents, <laughs> do, any, do any of you have to go to your children and say, oh, look, now I want you hungry today, at least by 11 o'clock. It doesn't happen. Why? Because of the nature of what they are. They're growing. They're alive. And God made us to work on fuel. We have fuel, something that feeds us so our body keeps going. That's exactly what the manna of God's word is for us. It is spiritual food. It's that upon which we should be feasting, thinking about, applying to our lives. Oh, oh, come, Holy Spirit. And help us as we continue. Come, Spirit of God. I read thy book. I read what thou hast said. Come and fill the temple of God. Now, with that in mind, consider the following. Jesus sent two disciples to fetch a donkey's colt. What an errand. Verses 29 through 35. The Spirit of God says through Luke, And it came to pass, when he was come nigh or near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. No one's ever ridden that donkey. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. Some of us have the gift of being concise. Some of us don't. But that's really quite an interesting thing. To tell somebody, go into the next village. There's a donkey there. I want you to take it and bring it to me. Now, if anybody gives you any trouble, if anybody says, um, why are you taking my donkey? Tell them the Lord needs him. That's it. No, other, no further explanation. You know, there's no, okay, well, you know, we're with this guy, Jesus. Y'all, you've heard of Jesus, right? And I mean, you know, he's been around all through Galilee and getting down to Judea. He's been down there to Jerusalem a few times. I mean, he's turning people upside down with the things that he says and that he does. You know about him, right? Well, he sent us over here. (laughs) And he said, "Uh, uh, would you loan me your donkey? There's nothing like that there. It's so simple. Tell him the Lord needs it. So, as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, "Uh, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. And they let him go. 
Now, Bethphage and Bethany were villages east of Jerusalem. They sat on hills that overlooked the city of David and the Kidron Valley. Bethany sat on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, about a mile and a half from Jerusalem. So that's, that's where they are, about a mile and a half from the city of David. Since Jesus was staying in Bethany, he probably sent the disciples to Bethphage. We're not entirely sure how far that was, but it was close enough that they could go over, walk over, and uh, get the donkey. The two things about this passage are important for this message. There's a lot here, but we're just going to look at two things. First, the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus told the disciples, all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. And we go up to Jerusalem. Now, this event with the donkey will fulfill Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh. Wow. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. One of us or none of us would probably think that a donkey on the backside of a mountain has much to do with prophecy let alone prophecy of the promised king of kings. But Jesus knew, go get the donkey and tell them the Lord sent me. All right. Jesus has not been speaking of himself as the Lord. He's been talking about himself almost exclusively as the son of man. Now he takes a title that's very powerful. Go get the donkey and tell him the Lord wants him. The Lord needs him. Well, what does that mean? It means Jesus is putting everything in motion. The second important thing about this passage is that Jesus is clearly in control of the entire event. He's not just walking and bouncing around off God's providence like some of us do. He knew exactly why he was there. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew exactly where the donkey was. It's over in another village, but he knew that the donkey was there. He knew who the owners were. He knew what the owners needed to hear so that the disciples could take the donkey. And let us notice again that he uses the term Lord to authorize what he's doing. Because Jesus is the Lord. When he speaks, that's it. All we need to do is understand and with love, walk in it. We're kidding ourselves to wear his name if we're not walking in what he says. He authorized the disciples to take the donkey and he knew what the 
owners needed to hear so that the disciples could take it. Because <laughs> they noticed, wait, that's our donkey. But the Lord has need of him. And that was enough. Christ is in control. Nothing about Jerusalem and his being there is out of control, even though it'll look like it. Under his father's sovereign hand, he is guiding all the events because his purpose is to go to Jerusalem and to die on Calvary's cross for the sins of his people. Nothing will stop that. Satan can do his best. But the Lord Jesus will just use Judas and others to do exactly his bidding. When Satan entered Judas, no doubt he thought, I've got Jesus now. Which is exactly what the Lord wanted him to think. Because he knew that his father's eternal purpose was to hang on that cross. So Judas, you're just part of the picture. Go ahead and do your work. And I will do mine. So they've got the donkey. They brought it to Christ. And the stage is now set. The following events will unfold God's eternal purpose of redeeming his people through the blood of Christ. Jesus knows what is coming. There are no surprises for him. He will enter Jerusalem to die upon a cross as the sin-bearing substitute of his people. He will endure the horrors and the shame of scourging and mocking and spitting and crucifixion to secure the forgiveness of sins for all those who will repent and believe. He knew that there was no longer a need to avoid unnecessary conflict. If you read the Gospels, you'll see Jesus from time to time ducking out of certain scenes. They want to throw him off the cliff. He quietly moves through the crowd and moves on. He's constantly saying, all right, yes, I've just healed you. Go and tell the priest, but that's enough. Don't, go, don't spread this everywhere. He's avoiding unnecessary conflict, but not now. He's driving providence to the cross. In fact, Jesus now takes deliberate steps to reveal himself to the Jews as their long-awaited king. So then, Jesus approached the holy city to the joyful praise of multitudes. Verses 36 through 40. The text says, and as he went, he, uh, they spread their clothes in the way. It's not a practice we have today. But they would take their garments and they would lay them on the road as if to make a beautiful place for the person who's uh, approaching the city or, or whatever important event was taking place. Uh, Matthew even tells us they were cutting down limbs off of trees. There were palm trees. They were littering the highway with all these human adornments for the one who was coming down the mountain toward the city. This is an incredible scene if in our minds we can get just a little bit of it. Thousands of pilgrims, 
They're excited. They're taking off their robes and they're laying them on the, the, the dirty road going into the city for this little donkey to carry this controversial preacher. Man. They spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, <clears throat> even now, <clears throat> at the descent of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives also lies east of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. It was a two and a half mile ridge that had three peaks. It rose up about 2,660 feet. So it gave a panoramic view of the temple area as you came down. As you came down the Mount of Olives, you could see the temple area in Jerusalem. Well, that's, that's the scene. Thousands of pilgrims, disciples. Many have already filled up uh, Jerusalem there, depending on who you read, there were anywhere between 250,000 and a million people gathered for Passover. In other words, the place is a hive of activity and hustle and bustle and religious reverence. <clears throat> so all of a sudden, you see the road starting to be covered with Different colored robes, probably most of them were white. And you're seeing kind of like this white artery coming down the mountain as the people are coming. And all of a sudden they start shouting and they're yelling and they're full of joy. They're exuberant. This is the son of David. This is the son of David. This is the king. Well, there were those that weren't excited about that. What an extraordinary sight it must have been from the city. They saw the multitudes coming and there was already a multitude in the city. It appears that some may have even come out to meet them. Now Matthew's gospel adds that a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, cut down branches, strawed them in the way, etc., etc. And the, as the multitudes went before them and followed, they cried. And that verse means... They were loud, y'all. They were loud. They were loud. Hosanna to the son of David. They were worshiping this guy on the donkey. What kind of picture does that make for you? It wasn't in a great chariot covered with gold and silver and brass and, you know, ten horses pulling it. You know, he wasn't being carried on the shoulder like we often see in, in Eastern governments even now. Wasn't like that. It was just a man dressed like everybody else, riding on a donkey's colt. And yet the people, if I can put it this way, are going wild. Hosanna! To the son of David. Worship. Blessed is he. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. This is calling down God's blessings upon this fellow. Hosanna in the highest. I mean. 
there are times, I'm sure you've had this experience at some time or another, something fills you with such joy, with such excitement that it's hard to put it in words. In my house, that unusual place, there, there were times when we thought something was really wonderful and, and we would try to pile up as many adjectives as possible. Ultra mega wonderful. Right? Because it had to be better than just regular wonderful. Right? This was ultra mega. How, how much bigger can it get than ultra mega? You know, but, but that's the kind of thing you're getting with Hosanna in the highest. Worship as high as it gets. This is no low-level tip of the hat. This is people shouting for joy. The king has come. And he's come to Jerusalem. Someone of the highest importance was approaching the city. Everybody knew it. Including his enemies. Now someone... Someone of his stature had to be important, right? In Deuteronomy, God commanded the Jews under the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come. Jesus is obeying that. He's coming to the place where God's presence dwells and he's being proclaimed as the king appointed by that god in the temple this is a remarkable scene the name jerusalem itself means something like foundation of peace foundation of peace and jerusalem was the city of king david jerusalem was The place where Solomon built God's beautiful temple. Jerusalem was the habitation of God's glorious presence. So in the hearts of the Jews, Jerusalem was the center of the world. It was the heart and soul of Jewish religious, economic, and political life. It was all there. It was the holy city. We don't function like that today. And Christians don't. Jesus even told the woman at the well, listen, where you're worshiping and even in Jerusalem, that's all going to fade away. God's looking for spiritual worshipers everywhere. That's what we're doing here today. I trust. And that's what Christians are doing all day today. Everywhere in the world. They're being drawn to the spiritual Jerusalem. We're in it right now. There's a greater one coming. But we're in it right now. We're in the kingdom right now. We're in the seed form, just like Jesus' parables talk about. But it's growing and it's filling up the world. And here we're seeing an extraordinary view of the king coming down with his entourage toward the holy city. The people are eating it up. They're yelling, they're shouting, they're worshiping. Well, 
Passover was one of those occasions where God commanded all the males to come. And Jesus, once again, is obeying the law. And Jerusalem, great and glorious as it was, had a dark side. It was also the place where the Jews often killed God's prophets. And Jesus had prophesied his own death there. He was purposefully igniting all the events that would lead to his death and resurrection, including this extraordinary approach to the city. So the text says, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed be the king, the king. Other kings don't like to hear about kings being praised. We found out that about Herod, going all the way back to the early chapters of Matthew. Kings don't generally appreciate other kings. And in a place run by prideful, dark-hearted Jewish leaders, the idea of people calling this fellow on the donkey the king did not sit well. Now, those words meant that the swarming crowds were calling Jesus the son of David, King Messiah. The fulfillment of scripture. The Jews, at least we're told by history, the scriptures don't say this. But history says that when they gathered for Passover, one of the things that the Jews prayed about the most intensely was the coming of Messiah. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus is referring to when he laments very shortly about if you had just known, even in your day. Well, after hearing the crowds, the religious leaders immediately responded. Uh, Luke's text says, and some of the Pharisees were among the multitude. They said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. That's an interesting command, isn't it? <laughs> when thousands of people are shouting that you are the son of David. Uh, Put the fire out, is what they're saying. Uh, there's some religious fervor building up here that we don't like. Rebuke is an interesting word. It means to expose error. So what are they saying? Tell these yelling, these noisy, loud disciples that they're wrong to be doing this. And tell them to stop. Jesus says, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones should immediately cry out. <laughs> In other words, Jesus means that if his rational creatures were to stop praising who he was, then creation itself would cry out. This is the Messiah. This is our creator. The heavens the rocks, the stones, the birds, 
everything, the whole earth would rise up and say, this is the king. (laughs) So Jesus, Jesus didn't stop anybody. He didn't stop anybody. He didn't jump down off the donkey and start running here and there and saying, quit, stop. You're really ticking these guys off. Stop. I'm going to be in trouble. Jesus was ready for the trouble. He welcomed the trouble because he knew what his father gave him to do. So, Israel proclaims him to be its longed for Christ. And that very proclamation will bring him to death. Next, let's consider who shed these tears. Who shed these tears? We go from this exuberant, this jubilant celebration. Thousands upon thousands of people being loud and noisy. You know, think of 20, 30,000 people in a football stadium and multiply it a little more. Deafening, roaring, Son of David, King, Messiah. Well, we would think that Jesus might, if we had written the Bible, (laughs) I'm glad we didn't, but if we'd written the Bible, Jesus would probably have said, you finally got it. After all this work, you finally got it. Good. I'm really glad. Good. Let's, well, let's have a great Passover week, right? Nothing like that. In fact, the picture changes so radically. It's like, what happened? Before Jesus enters the city, he's still on the donkey, and he looks at the city and he breaks down in tears. When he was come near, He beheld the city and wept over it, says verse 41. Jesus had descended with the multitudes. Now he was near the city. And we see at least two things. Number one, he beheld. He saw the city. He's looking at it closely. And number two, he wept over it. The word beheld does not simply mean that Jesus had a visual experience. Oh, here's the city. This is where we were coming. He did, of course, have a visual experience, but it was connected to what he knew and what he knew was coming. His own death and the destruction of the city. He knew this. He's not weeping over his death. But he knew something was about to happen to this city. It's very explicit. He wept over it. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean the buildings. There were some spectacular buildings there, primarily the temple. It isn't like, oh, what a great city. I mean, it was beautiful. And now, you know, the big towers and all that are all about to come down. That's that's not what Jesus is weeping over. <clears throat> Jesus knew that he would be tortured and crucified as a common criminal in that city 
He knew that the city and its temple would be annihilated. And he knew the unbelieving population would fall into the flames of hell. Because they had rejected the one who came preaching, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, the destruction of the city is simply the end of the unbelieving people of God. See, we don't have to have a building to worship. They had buildings and a priesthood and certain sacrifices given by the law. The Lord was taking all of that out. They couldn't even properly worship as time goes on. Jesus not only beheld the city, he not only looked upon it knowing what was coming, he wept over it. He wept. The, the, the word wept is a strong verb. It means sobbing, sobbing, wailing. He was wailing over the city. What a contrast. People are going, Hosanna in the highest. And he's weeping. He is not contained. He's not whimpering. He's wailing over this city. He's wailing over their unbelief. And he's wailing over the destruction that is surely coming to them in their unbelief. Verses 29 through 40 revealed that many of the Jews finally said in the open, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the king. Do we understand that? But had Jesus opened their understanding? No. Who is this? Who is this that's weeping while everybody else is praising him? God promised in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee, the serpent, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. From that moment, God's purpose of redemption unfolds through the Bible. And Genesis 3.15 has been unfolding all the way through the Bible, and now Jesus is... Right here at the holy city, the place where God put his name, the place where the holy presence of God dwelt, the only place on earth like it. And Jesus knows it's about to be laid to the ground. He's not crying over the buildings. He's crying about the immortal souls in that city. They have rejected him. And nothing awaits them but hell. A.D. 70 will be one of the most horrific events in history. And yet it is nothing compared to the day of judgment and the eternal flames of hell. The people in this city, the males circumcised, convinced that they're God's people, 
and they will be fodder for the fire. Jesus is wailing over them. Why isn't he laughing with glee? Some of these people are going to cry out for my blood. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be spat upon. Why isn't he sitting and laughing? Yours is coming. Go ahead, do your worst. It's coming for you. He doesn't do that. He weeps for them. Who is this? He's the fulfillment of the seed that would crush the serpent's head. Who is this? He's the one that the law and the prophets and the writings talk about. Who is this? He is the prophet, the priest, and the king set forth throughout all the Old Testament writings. All of those books, the 39 books, stand like so many signs pointing that way, that way. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And now he's stalled outside of Jerusalem on a donkey. And he's trembling and weeping and wailing for the lost. This is the eternal Son of God made flesh. This is He that is truly God and truly man. This is the prophet, the priest, the king of the old covenant and the new covenant people. He is the one the Old Testament points to. He is the one that the New Testament reveals as the Lord and Savior of His people. It reveals that He is the coming judge who will settle all things at the day of judgment. Who? Is that sitting on the donkey, weeping tears over the city? The king of the Jews, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, God's son. That's who. He knows all things, has all powerful, has all power. There were things his father had not revealed to him yet, but he sure knew what was coming to Jerusalem. He is the only one that the Savior, he's the only Savior that God the Father authorized and sent into this world to save sinners. The only one. There's not a second one. I was talking with a man on the block just the other day, and he was saying, well, you know, uh, he knew that I was a pastor here and he said, well, uh, you think that, you know, the, the time's coming when God's going to give us another chance? And I said, no, ever, right now is all that matters. Right now, I said, you will have no other chance. You're still breathing. You still have a chance right now if you want to use that language. Repent and come to Christ today. You don't know. No one here knows that you have tomorrow. You don't know that.
On that donkey sits the Christ. On that donkey sits the Savior of the world. On that donkey sits the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the city would not have him. Oh, there were people screaming his name. And they were saying, yeah, yeah, he's the guy. But in a few days, the same voices are going to say, crucify him. Crucify him. The Pharisees will do their work and the city will turn on him. And he will be turned over to the Romans for torture and death on the cross. But he's not crying about that. He's weeping over the lost souls of that city. He purposed in eternity to save. He died and rose again in history to save. And he will come again in the future to take the saved to himself for all eternity. But right now is when you repent and believe or not. There is no second chance waiting past your death. I thought God was merciful. He's merciful. He's just set Jesus before you right now. Everyone in here is responsible before God for what you've heard. Let's go a little further. Consider why these tears were shed. Consider why these tears were shed. We've talked about when they were shed. We've talked about who it is that's shedding them. Now, why? Why? Well, we can be brief here because we've already opened the door to understand. Jesus himself explains his tears. Number one, the people were ignorant of who he was and what he came to do. How do we know that? Because he says, if thou hadst known known if you had understood even thou that means even you the city of God at least in this thy day why is it their day Jesus is about to enter the city and he'll be there for about a week teaching in the temple every day working miracles Showing himself to be the son of God. It was their day because Jesus had been among the people of the nation for more than three years. But now he is personally there. If thou hadst known the things which belong unto thy peace. But now they are hid from thine eyes. They did not repent. They did not believe. And the eyes of their understanding were shut. They were just like much of modern Christianity in America. It was like a sideshow. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, he's, he raised the dead. I mean, he's healing people. Let's get grandma out there. Let's get our son who's got a, a, a leg problem. Let's, let's get everybody out there. Oh, what, he fed people? Let's go eat. Jesus even calls them on that. John 6. You're just here because I fed everybody. It wasn't like they had found him and said, Messiah, and fell at his feet and believed him. They were there for 
dinner. Do we get this? People like to hear, oh, God saves by grace. Good, that means I don't have to do anything. Uh, That's a wrong way to understand grace. We have a nation, my friends, of whom many profess Christ. But they're as ignorant as the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Do you understand that our nation is where it is because of its pulpits? It isn't just, oh, the Marxists got into office. How'd they get there? Who's been preaching about it? It would seem if we're related to Christ that we would weep over our nation and not just listen to the conservative talk show host who talks about Biden. We have a country that is set up for destruction. Is anybody that professes to be a Christian weeping? Weeping for the lost. Not, oh, we're going to lose our freedoms. Oh, now our children won't be able to go to this school. I'm going to have to teach them at home. Oh, now, that's not any of that. Are you and I concerned about the souls of men? Jesus was. It's right here. He was concerned about the souls of the lost. He said, your earthly peace is about to disappear and you've missed your heavenly peace. What? You've missed it. Isn't there always a chance? No. There's a time when God says, that's it. It's over for you. (laughs) I, I, I thought he was off. He is love. He put his son in the place of sinners. And until you repent of your sins and believe on him, whatever else you think you think about God, you hate him. You have turned away his son. You have turned away his mercy. You have turned away his grace. You have turned away his love. He has set his son before you over and over and over again. Jesus was in that nation for three and a half years, raising the dead, healing the sick, touching the lepers, preaching like no one had ever heard. And then they killed him. You can be religious all day long. But it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God, that opens men and women and children's hearts. You have an opportunity this day to repent of your sins if you never have. And to believe on the Christ we're talking about. The Christ that was sitting on a donkey outside of the city and weeping for the lost. Tears for the lost. They're immortal souls made in the image of God. When they die, it's not over. When you die, you enter eternity. Heaven or hell, 
No other option. No second chances. Your opportunity is today. You have today. That's all you know you've got. Repent. And believe on Christ. Stop saying, oh, well, I don't know about this. Well, I'm not sure about that. I don't know about that. You need to be sure that Christ wept even for his enemies. Are we doing that? When was the last, you don't have to raise your hand. When was the last time you wept over Mr. Biden's soul? Kamala Harris's soul. The people that govern our own state. When was the last time you wept for somebody? Now, parents, other than your children. When was the last time you wept for the lost, including your enemies? That's what Jesus was doing. He will even say from the cross later on, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We can argue all day about how and who he was praying for, but it doesn't change the fact that Christ was hanging on the cross and praying for what I believe was answered on the day of Pentecost. Men and women from everywhere, all around the Mediterranean, were there, and they were converted. Some of them who had been part of the crowds that cried out for his blood. Jesus is so burdened. He said, the days will come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee the city even with the ground. Do you know what he's saying? Complete annihilation. The city is going to be obliterated. And thy children within thee Oh, if you read any of the historical uh, reports about what happened in A.D. 70 when the Romans circled that city, they were not going to let anybody get away. Thousands of Jews were crucified and hung outside the city to say to everyone outside, you're going to die in there or you're going to die out here, but you're going to die and we're going to take the city. And God Use them to do it. Thousands groaning. They ran out of wood because there were so many crosses and so many bodies hanging on them. Jesus was weeping for his enemies because it wasn't just the horror of what was coming. The horror was because they had rejected him. Wept. The people knew that Jesus had ministered in their land for more than three years. The people knew that they, he was an astonishing preacher. They knew that he was the startling miracle worker. And now they even praised him for being God's promised king. But Jesus saw through their excitement and their frenzy. Because they were very quickly talked out of their view. And that happens. Oh, there are people that say, oh, I'm a Christian now. Oh, yeah, I love Jesus. And then they hear a certain lecture or they hear a particular atheist or they hear a false teacher and they're gone. Happens all the time. Just saying, oh, yeah, I'm a believer. 
doesn't count. You should repent. You should believe. If you truly do, if you're born of God's spirit, you'll walk with Jesus. You'll love his people. You'll gather with his people to worship and praise and adore him because he saved you. (laughs) What else would you worship somebody more intensely for? You saved my soul. You saved my soul. You forgave me of all my sins. I should be in hell right now. Do you ever think that? There are moments when my flesh says, you know where you ought to be. That's how I do. There are times when it's hard for me to walk up into the pulpit because I know what this flesh is and what it's been. And then the Holy Spirit brings the glory and the vision of Christ hanging on the cross. Christ rising again. Christ ascending into heaven and interceding for this fool every day. And it's that way for every one of his children. Who is that on the donkey? Why is he over there sobbing? Why is he crying? Isn't this a day of celebration? We're here for Passover. He knew it was coming. He knew of the coming destruction. And he knew that that coming destruction had meant that the city did not believe him. Let me make three very brief applications. They're all questions. The first question is, I've posed it, I pose it again. Do you and I shed tears for the lost? Jesus shed tears for the lost. Oh, well, he's Jesus and I'm not. This is true. But if you're born of God's spirit, you're in union with Jesus by the very power of heaven, the very power of the Holy Spirit. There ought to be something that has a little bit of the family characteristics. One of them is concern for the lost. Oh, goody, I'm saved now. I can go ahead and live my life and, you know, I hope some other people get saved. This is not Christianity. It's like the Lord had mercy on someone like me. I want the people around me to know. I want my family to know. I want the people in the workplace to know. I want the people in my city to know. I want want the lost to know that destruction is coming. A destruction greater than the destruction of Jerusalem. The day of judgment is is one day closer. This is not fantasy. This is not Disney. The great day when the judge will appear is one day closer, one hour closer, one second closer, one heartbeat closer, one breath closer. Are we concerned about anybody else but ourselves? 
Have you sat down? Have you got on your knees? Have you stood in your, your prayer closet? Have, I mean, whatever your posture is, have you cried out to God for your city? Have you cried out to God for your state? Have you cried out? Have you wept tears for the lost? If not, we each need to ask ourselves, why not? What is it about my life that's so all-engrossing that I cannot shed a tear for those on their way to hell? Do you and I shed tears for the lost? Jesus took no delight in the devastation and the ruin of the world. Uh, ruin, their ruin in this world and the next. He took no joy at the thought that the city would undergo the nightmare of AD 70. He took no joy in the, the thousands that would be crucified, the, the, the Roman soldiers and the horror of famine and cannibalism and pestilence and the terror of rape and murder and torture by their own people or by the Romans. That was awful. If we all sat down and really thought about it, it would grieve us. We would sorrow. But Jesus knew there was something worse coming. The destruction of their city meant their eternal destruction because they had rejected him. Are you rejecting him right now? Are you rejecting him right now? Well, I want to think about this. What do you need to think about? You're lost. You're already under the condemnation of God's law. If you were to die right now, you would be forever in darkness, in the place where the worm dieth not, where the flame is never quenched. And why? Because you won't have Christ. Because you won't repent of your sins and believe on the only one who can forgive them. Destruction is coming. And everlasting life is coming. For all those who repent and believe, it is life, life, eternal life. Well, ah, my last thoughts were, do you and I think of the things of the peace that Jesus mentioned? I can just summarize it by saying there's no real peace to be had unless you repent of your sins and believe on Jesus. And then all of your sins are washed away completely. All of them. You're at peace with God. Until the Lord saves you, you're at war with God and at peace with your sins. And after Christ saves you, you're at peace with God and at war with your sins. And finally, do you and I believe in the coming destruction? I simply ask you, do you, do you believe the Bible? Over and over, Paul, Jesus, warns about his coming and all things being set right. And here's how it'll end. Those who know him will be welcomed into the kingdom for eternity. Those who do not will hear, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Jesus knows and Jesus knew he would be sitting on the throne and saying that. One of the reasons he trembled. So, brothers and sisters, Jesus shed tears for the lost. Why? 
because he had a heart for the lost. Do you and I have a heart for the lost? Let us pray with all our might that God will give us hearts for the lost, tears for their souls. May God hear our pleas. May he see then, may we see then great fruit and a harvest of souls as we plead with God, even as we weep for our families, our congregation, our neighbors, our city, our state, our country, and our world. And may we see God move by his power of spirit to the salvation of an innumerable host of souls. Jesus shed tears for the lost. May it be so for us. Amen. Take us now, O Lord, from this place. But Father, may we not forget the portrait of a man sitting on a donkey, trembling and wailing for the lost. Open the hearts of the lost here, Lord. Open the lost. Open their hearts in our city, in our state, in our nation. We pray for our leaders. Many of them are leading us further into darkness. Turn them around. Save their souls. Help us, O God, to magnify thee. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you please stand with me. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let us go in the name of Christ Jesus.